Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Lately, we've been doing uh, most of our shows, not all of them, but most of them on energy liberation and the future of energy. And several weeks ago, we had on Rod Adams to talk about uh, the potential in nuclear power and what nuclear policy should be. And uh, Rod had been on the show before. And another great guest we've had before on nuclear is Kirk Sorensen, who you may well know as an advocate uh, of a certain kind of thorium uh, reactor. And if you go to Energy from Thorium online, you'll see uh, a video of his that, that was quite successful. It has something like 330,000 views. Um, anyway, Kirk is a really pro-technology, pro-human, pro-innovation individual. And he's fun to talk to. So I thought, well, if we're talking about the future of energy, the future of nuclear, we should definitely bring him on. So uh, coming up, we all have Kirk Sorensen, and we'll talk about the future of nuclear. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined once again by Kirk Sorensen, President and Chief Technologist of Flybe Energy. Kirk, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks a lot, Alex. I'm glad to be back. All right. Well, uh, your episode was definitely... <clears throat> One of the more popular ones seem to be getting sick right now, uh, unfortunately. Um, but fortunately, you'll be most, doing most of the talking. So for those who, who don't remember or weren't there for the first episode, you guys should definitely check that out since we'll be covering different topics today. How did you get into uh, nuclear power more broadly, energy from thorium more particularly, and what are you working on right now? Okay, uh, great question. I I got into energy from thorium and energy from nuclear at about the same time. Uh, it was very early in my career at NASA. I was fresh out of grad school. This was about 2000. I had been interested in energy as long as I can remember. I, I don't think there's many mechanical engineers minted out there that aren't interested in energy. Uh, so I had looked at wind and, and solar and things like ocean thermoelectric conversion and space solar power and all kinds of interesting and bizarre variants on this. And, and it come to a pretty, uh, pretty sobering conclusion that, that, the, that the answer to our energy problems was, was not lying out there amongst these, uh, amongst these options. And, and that, was, that was pretty depressing. I'd, I'd had a real interest in fusion for quite some time, taking classes on fusion engineering when I was in uh, when I was in uh, my master's program at Georgia Tech, and and also came away from that thinking, goodness, you know, this is, this is not going to be coming along. And so when I uh, first started learning about nuclear fission and and specifically energy from thorium, I was really skeptical because I thought, well, I've been I've been wrong a lot before on on energy sources. You know, could this really be that good? And and so kept studying it very intently. And I realized looking back now that it was a very pronounced advantage for me to be able to learn about nuclear fission and thorium at the same time because uh, it appears that a lot of other people that go into uh, fission 
learning about solid-fueled, uranium-fueled reactors have a very, very hard time kind of wrapping their brains around the idea of a liquid-fueled uh, thorium reactor versus what is commonly used out in the industry. So I, I definitely came at it from a different direction. And, and as I've studied it since then, I've become increasingly convinced that it has the potential to uh, to replace the the energy sources that we have today and, and and accomplish that in an even superior fashion and i'm mindful i've you know i've read your book alex i really enjoyed it thank you very much for writing it and and uh, it's definitely a uh, a book that that shows the value of fossil fuels I and mean, more specifically in my mind shows the value of dense reliable energy sources uh to providing for humanity's needs and and i and i completely agree with you that we have to have dense, reliable energy if we are to uh, see human civilization progress in the future. Uh, I also agree with you that we have abundant fossil fuel reserves, probably enough to last thousands and thousands of years. Uh, the question remains, uh, will utilizing those fossil fuel reserves result in undue damage to our environment? And if so, is there something perhaps even better that could replace them? And that's where I think thorium uh, has that potential. Well, yeah, and, and, and you can think about that on a certain continuum of, of positivity, because it could be that the state of the art in one era is replaced by the state of the art um, in another era. And so if, if you say, well, this could potentially be cheaper and more abundant and cleaner, that's, I mean, that's that's the kind of progression you want, and this is why in, in chapter two of the moral case for falsehoods, I'm very adamant about the potential of nuclear power, and how the same anti-human, anti-technology forces that are are I believe leading to a very biased way of thinking about fossil fuels lead to a biased way of thinking about nuclear. So I, you know, my my interest is in is in always having the state of the art and, and in particular because en energy abundance is such a value uh, we need to think about w what we can do to facilitate that and ultimately I think it's it's a matter uh, of, of liberation of, of allowing human ingenuity to flourish and, and to not um, to not hold back innovation and that gets to, to the subject that I really want to talk about today which is um, the, the potential of liberating nuclear power, because I definitely, I'm curious how you think of that issue. I, I think of it very much as it's, it's been constrained. I think there's a lot of historical evidence. Um, so I want to talk no, about I that. completely, completely agree with you there. That, and I, again, I've studied this extensively and, and come to the same conclusion. It has been constrained, substantially constrained from the very beginning. Yeah, so I, I think the way I want to proceed is first let's talk a little bit about the upside of nuclear power. And of course, you, you can uh, focus on liquid uh, you know, thorium reactors because that's, that's your expertise and, and you know, presumably that's what you think has the most potential. Uh, but uh, you know, what's the potential here? And then once we have that best case scenario, blue sky, we can talk about why our actual scenario is very much uh, gray sky. So what is what is the upside uh, of nuclear power? Why does it excite you so much? All right, and that's a very simple answer to that question. The upside of nuclear power is that it contains over two million times the energy density of the equivalent mass of, of, of a chemical fuel. 
And this has to do with the fact that the atom is built in a particular way. We've got these little protons and neutrons at the nucleus, and then we've got the electrons whizzing around it like little planets in a solar system. All of the chemical energy we release has to do with rearranging the configuration of those electrons. And those electrons are bound uh, in, in scientific terms, they're called electron volts. So it's the, they measure the binding energy of the electrons and electron volts. Well, then they also measure the binding energy of the nuclear material, the pieces that are in the middle of the atom. And they're measured in millions of electron volts, so millions of times greater. So when you rearrange the energy configurations in the nucleus, you're naturally releasing millions of times the energy of rearranging electrons. And the other thing that I take away from that, there's no in-between. You know, there's no intermediate structure in the atom that has, say, a thousand times the energy of the electrons. It really is a step change to go from dealing with the energies of the electrons to dealing with the energies of the nucleons. And we look around the universe... All energy is nuclear in origin. It has to do with the release of nuclear binding energy, whether it's in the stars or in the decay of radioactive atoms deep inside the Earth. When we pull back the, the, the corner a little bit on all of our energy sources, solar, wind, fossil, any of the rest, we eventually find nuclear energy at the root, at the base of all of these energy sources. So that's what excites me about it is I see it as an inevitability in human evolution, that we are going to go to that step. I hope it happens in my lifetime, but it will most definitely happen. And whatever parts of the human civilization move off and embrace this, they are going to realize tremendous advantages, regardless of what the remainder of human civilization may think or, or fear or, or bask in superstition about. There's nothing unnatural about nuclear energy. In fact, nuclear energy is the original natural energy source. Yeah, well, natural versus unnatural is a kind of very dubious uh, distinction if, 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 you know, human beings and human intelligence are regarded as unnatural, then let's bring on the unnatural, uh, because that's, those are very good things. Uh, let's, let's have you elaborate a little bit on the importance of, of energy density. It has come up several times on Power Hour, um, but it's not something that's that's much uh, that's very present in our cultural discussion. It's possibly been elevated a little bit over the years, but if you look at what's considered the ideal form of energy, uh, it's it's usually something that is in, incredibly dilute, like the you know you know photons from the sun, or or uh, gusts from the wind. So why why is it so exciting to have a far denser source of energy? Than the already densest source of sources of energy, you mentioned chemical energy being coal, oil, and natural gas, that are already people don't even seem to care about their density. I mean, they care in practice, but they don't care in theory. So why is this such a big issue? Well, it's an issue for me because I look back over the development of of human civilization, you know, dating back to uh, the earliest historical records, and you can see an unbroken march. In, in the evolution of, of human development towards denser sources of energy. At each step, we have moved into a denser energy source. We started out with the energies of our own bodies from digestion, you know, and then we moved to the energies of combustion. We could, we could start fires and we could cook meat and so forth. We moved to stronger animals like ox and horse that could do things that we couldn't do, or run faster or pull plows. Uh, eventually, we moved to harnessing flowing water and, and even, you know, blowing air in the form of windmills to pump water or to, uh, or to drive a, a, a grinding wheel. 
But at every step, we kept looking for more and more dense energy sources. And the Industrial Revolution happened in large part because we were able to take fossil fuels like coal and later on petroleum and take that heating of combustion and turn it into work, shaft work for the first time. That was the marvelous thing about the steam engine. You know, we'd been burning coal for thousands of years, but the coal, but the steam engine was a way to burn coal and wood and turn it into work, work that could turn a, a wheel, work that could uh, propel a locomotive, work that could uh, plow a field or, or run a, 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 a cotton uh, spinning, you know, mill in, in northern England. And it, it, the ability to harness work was just absolutely the heart of this. So we keep watching this progress from coal and wood into refined petroleum products into natural gas. And it seems to me we stand on the precipice of taking that big step, that million to one step from fossil fuel dense energy sources into nuclear energy sources. And I'm very troubled that this notion uh, that is very prevalent and widely believed today that we are going to go backwards in energy density, that we're going to go from dense fossil fuel energy sources backward to wind and solar and diffuse, intermittent, unreliable energy sources. It, 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 it boggles the imagination that, that an intelligent, uh, you know, refined technological civilization would ever consider doing something so foolish. But nevertheless, I see abundant evidence that we seem to think that this is a good thing. And I just have to, you know, would that everyone was mechanical engineers and could see the foolishness of this because it's just, it just makes no sense at all. I think it's worth, though, highlighting the relationship between, uh, you know, energy density, which is a certain kind of form, of, which is a certain form of efficiency, and economic efficiency, which I think is ultimately the the most important thing, being that you want the most energy for the the fewest amount of resource inputs, and and in general, I think part of what makes energy density so valuable is that usually, you know, with these very dense sources you're getting far, your, your baseline is you're getting far less energy for the cost. So in terms of just, now there's the, of course the raw material that you're using, and then there's the conversion cost. But in terms of, talk about the raw material, how much cheaper is just the energy in the raw material of say a ball of thorium versus, a, you know, a ball of coal, uh, yeah, we can just compare that. Well, well, let me let me back up just a little bit earlier to something you said in that in that statement. The idea that uh, that it is a good thing to employ less resources to release energy. This is another truism that has been borne out by history, and yet we think it, we're going backwards, saying, "Well, we want to have more green jobs." You know, we want to have more people working yeah. in solar and wind, and and we and I think you know, really, does most of the population really want to be involved in the production of energy? Uh, I think not, and and I don't look at those jobs as as good jobs. I look at those jobs as as wasted potential. You know, pe those are things people are having to do because they could be doing something else. I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the relationship between energy and economics to think that it is a good thing to have millions of people employed collecting diffuse forms of energy. Uh, it, if you went back in time a hundred years ago, you know most of the well, maybe a little more than a hundred years ago, most of the population were farmers. I mean, in a sense, you could say they were collecting solar energy because, for all intents and purposes, that was what they were doing, and and it was being stored in the form of their crops. You, know, you had most of the population working on that, barely eking out a living. Now we have just a few percentage, uh, of, a few percentage points of our population working in agriculture, and yet they are supplying an enormous bounty of materials, as as you so uh, well described in your book about how uh, 
you know, with with the help of fossil fuels and artificial fertilizers and and uh, you know, liquid fuels to drive tractors and combines, a few a, a few percentage points of our population can feed all the rest. That's a great thing. You know, now now we have a population that's freed up to do all kinds of other things. So the notion that we're going to go backwards to all becoming or or even much more of us becoming collectors of solar energy or wind energy, to me, you know, defies belief. But but yeah, let's talk about the sources of energy. And you asked about you know what. What about a, a, a ball of thorium versus a, uh, uh, an equivalent mass of coal? You know, the thorium is natural material, just like, just like the coal, just like uranium. You know, but the thorium and the uranium represent energy sources that are you know, millions of times more energy dense. It's just that it happens to be quite a bit easier to get that energy out of the thorium than to get it out of the uranium. The uranium has a little bit of it, you know, 0.7%. That's real easy to get the energy out. But the other 99.3% is quite difficult to get the energy out. Uh, the thorium is a little bit harder to get the energy out than that tiny bit of uranium, but a whole lot easier to get out than the rest of the uranium. But the irony of coal is if you were to take an equivalent mass of coal for generating, let's say, a, you know, a gigawatt day of electricity, there's enough uranium and thorium in there to produce quite a bit more energy than, than was produced by the combustion of the coal. Just the tiny trace amounts, a few parts per million of uh, thorium and uranium in the coal, if utilized at full efficiency, theoretically, they would produce more energy than the coal did. So again, this, this material, which is found just about everywhere, has such remarkable energy density, and its cost is, is, is trivial. Uh, we, we currently mine uh, thorium with uh, rare earth mining operations, predominantly in China, and you know the goal is to throw it away. It's considered a radioactive waste product. But if utilized for energy, it doesn't have to be waste at all. And, and again, there's another story that has all kinds of historical precedents. Many times we've been looking for something and throwing something else away along the way only to find out later on, wait a minute, that's the part we really wanted. That's the really valuable part. Uh, I think the same thing is going to ultimately end up happening with thorium. We're going to realize this is an incredible energy resource and we're pretty foolish to throw it away while we're looking for things like rare earths. So I mentioned that you know you have the you have the raw energy uh, part of the process, but it is it is a process, which is something I, I try to emphasize in, in moral case for fossil fuels, particularly for understanding something like solar or, or wind, because people th tend to have this idea: oh well, the sun is free, so solar must be free. And you're like, well, there's quite a <laughs> well, conversion process, and, and the since, sun is free, but the machine that converts it is most definitely not free. Yeah, and since I wish land were free, especially where I live, uh, you know, Laguna Beach. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be very free, as far as no. as far as I can tell. So uh, anyway, but 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 that's the, but there is a point of um, you know somebody can say, well, look, the process of if we look at in practice today, the process of converting these raw materials. Now it's not thorium, but even even uranium to usable power. That conversion process is really expensive compared to, say, natural gas. Now, there are a lot of charlatans who say that solar has reached parity, and that's a joke because you can't compare unreliable power to reliable power. Um, but what's your view of, of again, this is going to get into what policies we need, but what's your view of the upside of nuclear in terms of cost? Is it, is it inevitably more expensive uh, than hydrocarbons at their current rates, or could it be significantly cheaper? 
Well, I've spent a lot of time looking at nuclear fuel cycles, including the kind we do today, the, uh, the uranium fuel cycle and solid fuel, where we only use about one half of 1% of the energy content of that uranium. And there are tools, uh, even online you can use. And the best part is some of these tools are written by anti-nuclear people. So it's really a hoot when you go and use an anti-nuclear tool to prove a pro-nuclear case. But uh, one time I was curious about what is the, the thermal content of one of these uh, uh, pellets of uranium, even in today's very, very inefficient process. And and how does that stack up relative to uh, to natural gas? And I found to my amazement that that uh, even the way we do it today was still advantaged over natural gas by, I think, like a factor of five or six. And so I really struggled going, golly, you know, if, the, if, if even the way we're doing it today has this really profound thermal advantage, uh, why is there this discrepancy between uh, the cost of nuclear energy, for instance, and the cost of uh, burning natural gas? And I had to come back to the idea of the, the regulatory burden that nuclear power currently operates under, that it is severe and it is expensive and it is reflected in the costs of energy and and perhaps that is something that can uh, that can be that can be changed um now of course if we were to utilize nuclear fuel far more efficiently like we could do in a liquid fluoride thorium reactor you know that already low cost of of nuclear fuel would go down even lower but that was part of the part that amazed me was to realize that the fuel cost which anti-nuclear people often will harp on saying no oh, it's so expensive to make nuclear fuel look at this but but not realizing what happens when you multiply against that against two million to one, and 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 there there is just still this discrepancy in cost between nuclear and and natural gas that can't be explained by the cost of preparing the fuel. It's something else. So there's the cost of preparing a fuel, but then there's you know once you have the fuel pellets, it's not like they just you know they don't just uh, it's not like there's a socket that just plugs into them. You know they have to then be they have to be used to turn a turbine and generate electricity. Yeah, I mean, they have to be arranged and put in a core and cooled and, and raised steam and, and all of that and so forth. So what about that that part of the process is people saying, well, this, this is what inevitably will make it expensive uh, forever. So maybe, you know, maybe at the, at the point of fuel, natural gas is, is uh, let's say, six times more expensive, but then the conversion process of the fuel to the electricity is prohibitive with nuclear. Well, and, and this is where, again, I struggle with wondering what is the role that the regulation plays in these costs, because I, I have other friends in, in, uh, in the academic world who have run the numbers on all the steel and concrete and specialized materials in a nuclear plant. And uh, one in particular comes back and says, I can't account for more than about 20 percent of the cost of the plant in terms of materials and construction. So you really have to wonder where is the cost? And and again, I, I think it's got to be in the regulatory burden. I mean, you can go and order up a, a natural gas plant, put it, you know, put it on site in, in probably 18 to 24 months and, and burn gas all you want, you know, and, and, and you don't have that regulatory burden that you have for the people that are trying to run a, a nuclear power plant. You know, you don't get to do that in 18 to 24 months with today's nuclear plants. You have to spend five to 10 years building the plant. And that wasn't always that way. In the early days of nuclear power, we built plants a whole lot faster for a whole lot less money. So what's changed since then? Certainly physics haven't changed. It's got to be the regulatory environment that's changed. And construction ability, you would presume, has increased, not decreased. It's because, you, you, you know, what has the construction industry just gotten five times less efficient and they can't build a plant? That would well, seem I have crazy. 
I have a lot of anecdotes. I heard a story about uh, there's a, a new nuclear power plant being built in Georgia where they, they laid down the rebar for the concrete f- foundation. And in the spec, they had specced out that the rebar was to be put at 90 degree angles from one another, which is, you know, logical. But uh, somebody hadn't exactly measured. And, and I think, you know, some of the angles were 89 degrees and some were 91 degrees. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission made them go and rip the whole foundation out and start over because they hadn't precisely made every angle 90 degrees. And stuff like that, I just think it's ludicrous. You know, it's, it's insane. You know, I mean, th- there's got to be some degree of reality applied to these things going, you know, 91 degrees is okay. 89 degrees is okay. You know, the, the basic idea is that you put the rebar at 90 degree angles to one another. Not that it has to be 90.0 degrees in every single instance. And I mean, that's an example where they wasted enormous amounts of time and money on a complete triviality. Is there, you mentioned that you have people who've studied the materials cost. That sounds like a really important part of analyzing and, you know, getting to the bottom of this, because it seems like there, there's difficulty, like we know there's something going on, but knowing, knowing exactly what's driving it is difficult. But with those materials prices, is there a way for us to get access to that? Are there, are there studies that are done in terms of just what the costs are of the actual raw materials? Because then you can break down the process and say, okay, what are the materials? What's the assembly process, et cetera? Well, you ought to invite uh, Professor Per Peterson of UC Berkeley on your show. Number one, he's a brilliant guy and, and, and a great describer of this. He's the one who told me about these material prices. Oh, I've and, seen his, I think I use his research in my book, so I'll see if he'll if yeah. come on. We'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely have him. Yeah, that would be a great, yeah, I think I use one of his, because I think he has stats for other, for multiple ones, including he does. solar and, and wind. And, and I really found that fascinating when he did a materials comparison per megawatt hour between, you know, solar, wind, gas, and nuclear, and showed, you know, nuclear was really, even today's nuclear, was still quite a contender. And nuclear can get a lot better. This is another thing that really makes no sense to me as an engineer about why the public has been taught to expect that solar and wind are just going to keep getting better and keep getting cheaper when there are very, very real physical constraints on both processes. You know, solar power is not getting any more intense and won't for hundreds of millions of years, thankfully. And wind isn't going to blow any harder. (laughs) And yet there is this boundless faith that, you know, we are going to just have cheaper and cheaper and cheaper wind and solar. And I'm thinking, no, I really don't think we will. On the other hand, the notion that nuclear energy, uh, a process that right now utilizes an approach that's about one half of 1% fuel efficient, just simply can't get any better. You know, oh, we, we, we can't imagine that this can improve. And I'm going, well, you know, looking at the numbers to me, there seems to be an enormous room for improvement in fuel efficiency and room for improvement in safety and all kinds of other things. And, and if there's something I would be betting on improving, it would be nuclear energy rather than wind and solar. Yeah, it's it's such an important point to to notice these biases because there's there's a lot of of stuff driving them that's important to to note in other people's thinking and to pick out on one's own thinking because there is always this there there's so much going on here but you always I was at an oil company speaking I don't know less than a week ago and someone was just saying well you know it's just a matter of time before. Uh, renewables become cost competitive, and I had explained you should call them unreliables, but he was insisting on renewables. Like renewables become cost competitive once you solve storage. That's just like a statement. 
And it's like saying, well, it's just a matter of time before wood skyscrapers become cost competitive once you solve burning or whatever. Like, I'm sure you could, like some sort of resin or super wood, or although they're against genetic modifications, so that probably wouldn't happen. But whatever, like, there's, you're always looking for the most efficient process. So to arbitrarily say on faith, well, this one that I like on ideological grounds will inevitably become more efficient because I've seen other things become more efficient and this other one won't is just is pure ideology. And it, it, it reflects a misunderstanding. You mentioned a misunderstanding of economics before that's just rampant in energy because we see things going down in price and up in efficiency. And we don't realize that that is part of a reality based competitive process engage that, that people engaged in are are actually basing it on physics and engineering of what can actually be made to work it's not like if you just say oh i want everyone to eat faberge eggs for all of their food oh we can make it work no it's precisely that we we jettison those dumb ideas until somebody can until and unless somebody can show they're smart and most ideas are incredibly inefficient. So I just think it's, it's such a great point that this assumption is bizarre and it's being selectively applied to things that people are ideologically in favor of, not logically in favor of. Well, and I would ask an economic question to that person as well. I would say, okay, if you have a process and you can make it less and less expensive, uh, are you going to make more and more money on it, all things being held equal? You know, and he would probably come back, well, 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 yeah, sure. And I would say, okay, so how much room is there between today's already low energy prices and and no cost whatsoever for you to make profit in wind and solar and, and any other form of energy for that matter? And the answer is really not that much. And that is a an economic truism that really needs to be understood, that electricity is a very inexpensive commodity. And that's why we have the world that we do. But because it's such an inexpensive commodity, the incentive for profit-making enterprises to go and drive the cost down is really not that great. So you contrast uh, a dollar invested in you know, some app that's gonna show up with uh, 10 million new users versus a dollar spent on uh, a tiny, tiny improvement in electricity generation system. Where is, where is venture capital, where is risk capital going to go to? It is not going to go to energy. That's one of the reasons why a lot of our energy sources haven't changed. And the few ones that have changed have been able to chase uh, potential profit. We saw, oh, and, and you would know way better than me, so you know, stop me if I start tripping over myself here. But about five years ago when oil price, well, maybe it was longer than five years ago, but you remember in the last seven or eight years when oil prices really went up. 2008. And, really? and people thought, oh, my goodness, you know, we are, we are peak oil and we're in so much trouble and, oh, this is, and it's just going to get worse. You know, we're going to be at $200 a barrel oil. And, but what happened was a tremendous profit signal was being sent to the market. And new technologies, well, I should say old technologies like hydraulic fracturing that had been around a while but hadn't been able to get a foothold in the market, all of a sudden were having this enormous profit signal saying, go, do that thing, try that. And what happened was the United States brought 5 million barrels a day of new oil production online. That's the equivalent of like discovering a new OPEC country. 
I would have never believed it. If you went back in time 10 years and said, you know, we're going to double oil production in the United States. I said, you're crazy. It can't be done. I remember, you know, in 2008 at the Republican National Convention, Sarah Palin saying, drill, baby, drill. And the Democrats saying, well, you can't drill your way out of this problem. Well, apparently we did. You know? <laughs> Amazingly, it even happened under Obama. So it, it just seems to me that when that profit motivation appears in a market, innovation is driven. And looking at wind and solar and thinking, uh, you know, your, your margin for profit is already really small and it's, and, and it's not going to get much better. The innovation simply isn't there. You know, you're not going to be able to drive prices very far down. Well, if you get subsidies, then you can uh, you can. Well, subsidies, get... as we know, in an economic sense, they just mask realities. You yeah, know, yeah, they, yeah. Right. I mean, it's you're it's, making it's everybody pay for it instead of the right people. Yeah, but it's it's a racket. I mean, you're selling low quality luxury electricity. So, yeah. um, but okay. But so if we get back to um, you know, you, you mentioned that the materials costs aren't, you know, aren't dramatically different. Um, I think fundamentally the thing that's going on here, at least this is, this is my view, is that there is just this fundamental prejudice against nuclear power as uniquely dangerous and thus a whole set of rules and restrictions uh, need apply to it that don't apply to other technologies even though, as a matter of fact, nuclear power is much safer and, you know, compared to just about, you know, I'd rather for safety purposes live next to a nuclear power plant than to a street. Uh, but most people, you know, feel very much differently. Yeah, you'd be much safer living next to a nuclear power plant than living next to an oil refinery, for instance. And I think, you know, I've, I, I know what you're saying here, and I've thought long and hard on the subject. What makes nuclear different? And I think it is the notion of ionizing radiation and the potential of today's nuclear technologies, even under the tiniest fraction of possibility, to disperse that ionizing radiation. People die all the time in natural gas explosions, oil cars derail and explode, uh, refineries explode. I mean, terrible things happen. I, a few years ago, I cataloged mine disasters, natural gas explosions, and was just horrified at the number of deaths that were happening in the United States each year from these processes. But the reason why I don't think that scares most people is by the time most people hear about uh, a wrecked oil train in North Dakota or a natural gas pipeline explosion in the Bay Area, they're hearing about something that no longer has the ability to harm them. You know what I'm saying? They're hearing about something that the miners are trapped underground and, and you're going, wow, that's terrible for them. But boy, that can't happen to me. But the notion of a nuclear accident is like nuclear accident might happen stay tuned we'll be back after the break to tell you more you know it's the oh my gosh we, we better pay attention fukushima was the perfect example of this it was terror displayed on the nightly news for three months now how many people died of fukushima again from nu from nuclear radiation from nuclear radiation zero zero exactly but it was able fifteen thousand people had just lost their lives in one of the worst natural disasters in modern history Yet what was the United States talking about nonstop? Radiation, nuclear terror. Can it come here? Can it come across the ocean and kill you in your bed? You know, it just terrified people, kept them awake at night. Meanwhile, you know, all manner of other disasters were taking place, but none of them had the potential to hold you in their thrall like nuclear did. So I think so I, I, I have a counterexample to what you gave, because my, my take is that it's you know fundamentally 
technophobia and, and that ra the, the Greens have done a very good job of making people afraid of radiation. And, you know, they do it usually with terms that are vague in people's mind or unfamiliar in people's mind. And it's just this, you know, radiation as such has become demonized, which is, you know, bizarre if you know what radiation is and that it's everywhere, blah, blah, blah. But it's, 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 it's because if you think about like the time issue, oh, it might be coming in the future. Well, with, if you take something like, I mean, we're recording this, you know, it's really sad to think about on September 11th. Uh, I mean, if you think about the feeling of a terrorist attack, you know, even though it's over, it's the feeling of, wow, there's this, this danger in our society that could happen at any time. Now, you could theoretically think that of a gas leak and, and you'd be justified in a certain kind of sense. So you'd be like, if we don't do the right things, this could happen. And uh, you know, I, when I walk to the beach from my house, there's this natural gas uh, line under the, you know, under the sidewalk. And every time I think, you know what, there's a small chance this could explode. Now, it's, I don't worry about it, but I'm aware of it. You know, if there was a if there was the nuclear equivalent of that, I would not be worried at all. I'd be like, well, this is super stable, and if anything ever went wrong, I'd have tons of advance notice. I, I think there is this this deep uh, this deep uh, fear of of radiation, radioactivity. If you even think about how people think of the waste, they think of it as just this unique and alien substance that is just uh, almost offensively trying to kill us. And, 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 you know, I think the show The Simpsons has been a significant contributor to that. Oh, I completely agree. And I totally agree with your characterization of radiation is this awful, terrible thing that we brought into existence through our own technological hubris. And before we were around, our pristine, you know, friendly, innocent planet had never been besmirched by this awful, awful, awful material before and, and knew nothing of its terrors. But, oh, we... We, in our, in our hateful, destructive ways, said, Behold, come into being, ye awful green glowing substance that I saw in The Simpsons. You know, and moo-ha-ha-ha, Mr. Burns, you know, made it from his, as he, as he rolls around and all the money he makes in the evil, toxic way. I mean, this is, this is the way people think, and it, it's really unfortunate because it, no, uh, it has no bearing on reality. Uh, now you mentioned earlier that you blame the Greens for it, and and you know I, I look at it as I blame I blame the media for it, and the Greens were their useful idiots. Uh, the media's job is to get you to to pay attention. You know that's why Nancy Grace will sit there and uh, talk about a, a a missing teenager in Aruba for three weeks. You know whatever holds your eyeballs on the television screen. Now if they can tell you that there is a a, a vague indetectable fear that might be coming to get you and you have no natural mechanism by which to detect this you can't smell it you can't see it you can't feel it then they put themselves in the position of unless you listen to us and pay attention to us you're never going to know how much danger you're in that's a pretty potent thing if you know if I had to keep eyeballs on CNN boy I would love a topic like that and that's what radiation and nuclear energy can do that, for instance, an exploding natural gas pipeline or uh, miners buried underground or an oil train derailing or people falling off a nacelle on a wind turbine just can't do for you. You know, it's a pretty, uh, a pretty potent well, thing. Well, but you see with fracking, I mean, it's another example of technophobia where it's just this, this particular aspect of, of modern you know, extraction technology has been demonized not because it poses any particular danger. I mean, in terms of risks, it's less risky than most of the, the process of getting oil, which I don't think is overall very risky. Uh, but but it's it's been demonized in part because it's this new name and 
and they've gotten people to think of it as uh, as the issue. But whatever the exact causes, we definitely need you know, more positive education about just to give people a, a, an understanding, and I think especially a visual understanding of how this stuff works. And then, uh, if you and, and how much education do we get from our, our public schools about this? I mean, let me let me give you a really very real example, my own. Uh, in the eighth grade. I, I sat in uh, my physical science class in uh, my junior high school in Utah, and I remember my teacher teaching me about uranium and thorium and decay chains and alpha and beta and gamma particles and, and all of those things and giving me an introduction, an introduction along with all the other students to what these things were and what they meant. Alex, that was the last time anybody taught me anything about nuclear radiation throughout the rest of high school throughout my entire time in college getting a technical degree in mechanical engineering, throughout my entire first master's degree in aerospace engineering at a pretty fine school, Georgia Tech. No one ever taught me another thing about nuclear energy and nuclear radiation beyond what I learned in that eighth grade class. It wasn't until I began my degree work in nuclear engineering that somebody started teaching me things again about this. And the more I learned, the more I realized these are not a big deal. These can be handled. You can figure out if you're in danger. It can be done. It is really not that great of a threat. But then I thought, well, you know, how many people go into nuclear engineering? Almost nobody. Yet we have an entire civilization that needs to understand the benefits of nuclear energy, the risks, what's really going on. And because they know nothing and because our media doesn't bother to tell them any truth or any facts, uh, they proceed on superstition and fear. I can't tell you how many times I've been speaking to highly educated people, you know, multiple uh, degrees in technical fields who evidence the exact same phobia and superstition and fear about nuclear fission that you would expect out of the most brain-dead green organizations. Yeah, so here's the question I have then. Let's, let's posit that we can overcome this prejudice, and it is, it is a real prejudice. Okay? I mean, it's basically a prejudice uh, against generating energy, you know, using these nuclear forces and, and radioactivity, which is, you know, I think ultimately will be far superior to anything else. Uh, it's just this bias against this particularly advanced form of energy because of a lack of understanding uh, of its of its risks uh, as well as its benefits. But let's say we could get rid of that. Then the question is, so, so what, and, and in particular policy-wise, we could get rid of the prejudice, because I think that all of the, the policy, the innovation-destroying policies are rooted in this, this prejudice. Nuclear gets singled out. So if, if the government has a safety standard, my belief is it should apply equally to all technologies. You can't say, well, nuclear, we're going to have a billion times more of a safety requirement in terms of risk, because everything has some kind of risk. That's just completely irrational. That's unjustifiable. So the question is, if nuclear is treated fairly, what kinds of policy changes do we have that will liberate uh, nuclear? What what would, you know, in another way of putting it is, what is the, the Sorensen plan? Well, let me back up just a bit to what you said. If nuclear and, and nuclear-related regulatory experiences were treated fairly and uniformly, that is, if radiation standards were enforced at all power plants, not just nuclear power plants, uh, the immediate result would be probably the shutdown of most of the coal, natural gas, and geothermal plants uh, in the U.S. Because each of those is dealing with substantially higher amounts of radioactive material released to the environment than nuclear plants are. 
coal because of the combustion of coal uh, into the air and that tiny amount of uh, uranium and thorium and its daughter products being released into the atmosphere. Natural gas, particularly from fracking, because it comes up with radon and radon decay products that are released in the combustion of natural gas. And geothermal, for a similar reason, they're sending this water down in the ground. It's picking up naturally radioactive material. It's coming back to the surface. It's being released to the environment. Now, the reality is, is none of those three pose a radiological hazard to the consumer or to the public. They simply don't. Nevertheless, if you were to regulate any of those three technologies by the same standards as the nuclear regulatory uh, environment, they would not be allowed to operate the way they do. And that's a pretty sobering thought right there. Yeah. So let's so be careful what we wish for. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, yeah, but, but it's, but yeah, I'm thinking more of just, so, so even a radiation standard is a derivative kind of thing because the issue is human health and safety. It's not like there's intrinsically, I mean, so you, you need a radiation standard. Um, you, you know, there's levels uh, that are healthy, but then there's also sort of uh, risk assessments of what's the potential of accident that would have an unhealthy uh, level of this. And my sense, and, and my, and I mean, I'm sure of this, the way that a nuclear power plant, if, if any other form of energy was held to the same irrational standard as a nuclear power plant, it would be shut down. So you mentioned the radiation aspect, but I just mean from a pure safety perspective. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Radiation is just one reason. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so the issue is, what if, what if there were a rational playing field? So it's not that that the other ones are prohibited from uh, releasing any radiation uh, or that they're shut down, but that nuclear is not held to this completely irrational standard. Because you can always say, oh, well, let's just, let's just do another thing. Let's delay it another year to make sure that it's safe. Or let's make them, you know, 90.5 degrees is wrong. We need to be 90 degrees. So what, what do you think would be a set of, of rational policies uh, in terms of, of the the safety issue that would allow nuclear uh, innovation uh, to proceed and allow projects to proceed expeditiously. Well, I think the most fundamental change that could be made would be going back to uh, the set of radiological guidelines that were developed after World War II uh, uh, in the late 1940s and revisiting the theory that was developed called the linear no-threshold hypothesis which has to do with saying essentially we saw, you know, it, uh, we saw so many deaths from this much radiation and so many deaths from that much radiation. So we're going to draw a line through those data points, take it all the way down to zero. Uh, I, I, I heard a friend one time explain to me, he's like, it's like saying, well, if 100% of people die from falling from 100 feet and 50% of people die from falling from 50 feet, well, then one out of 100 people is going to die falling one foot. You know, and and it, and it actually is a pretty good example yeah, because it, it assumes that it assumes that organisms have no ability to uh, cope with radiation damage, which simply isn't true. If that was the case, we'd all be dead by now because the sun would have cooked us all. Uh, we can cope with radiation damage, provided that the damage rate does not exceed our ability to uh, to repair the radiation damage. All forms of life on this planet have radiation damage repair capability, and they have do have been doing it all the time since the dawn of life on this planet. Uh, nevertheless, our regulatory guidelines do not recognize this. They assume that any dose of radiation uh, of, of nuclear origin, no matter how small, 
is uh, is 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 fractionally uh, responsible for the generation of cancers and and damage in the in the public. And so, by that guideline, your goal is really always to get it to zero. And the way to get it to zero is to not do anything. Uh, ironically, you know, you won't really get it to zero because there's all all manner of natural background radiation processes going on. But I think until we finally go and take on this linear no threshold hypothesis and kill it it's going to be really hard for nuclear innovation to go forward because there is always this embedded regulatory desire to make it all stop, to make it all go away. And the data does not support the linear, the linear no-threshold hypothesis. At low doses of radiation, we don't see increased rates of cancer. And the reason we know this is we can go to a variety of different places on our planet where naturally people and, and, and organisms are exposed to much higher levels of background radiation. If you've ever seen Robert Stone's great film, Pandora's Promise, he takes his Geiger counter all over the world to different places. Particularly, there's this uh, beach in Brazil where there's a lot of thorium and uranium in the sands and shows background level radiation that's, you know, hundreds of times, most places. And what do we find there? Well, we don't find hundreds of times more cancer. Actually, the data shows that there's less cancer. So it's clear that our bodies and, our, and all organisms have the ability to repair radiation damage. But by laboring under this regulatory standard that every tiny incremental bit of radiological exposure is cumulatively uh, dangerous and debilitating, then inevitably... Uh, the drive is to try to go theoretically to zero. And you never can go to zero because, of course, we don't live on a planet that has no radiological material. But it, it, is, a, it is a regulatory goal, seemingly, at all times to try to drive the process to zero. And that's just does not jive with reality. It's not just the United States. Countries all over the world labor under the same flawed, erroneous guideline. And... Someone with, with, with guts and, and, and clear-headedness is going to have to take this on at the highest level. You know, I imagine a president of the United States saying, this just simply isn't true. It's crippling our ability to realize this technology, and it's not making anybody any safer or healthier or happier. So we're going to go and base our standards on science and what science is telling us. And the science is telling us that below doses of, uh, you know, so many millisieverts, there's no risk to you at all. Yeah, it, it is. It is a dogma. I mean, it is. It is this religion that it's like thou shalt not have radiation, period. Whereas all period. all scientific examination of substances and human health are are based on context and dosage. Uh, so it's just it's just a whole. And, and I think that is a powerful angle. And I have a bit of that in in the initial draft of energy liberation plan about how we need, you know, these policies need to be based on science, not superstition, but I'm definitely going to elaborate uh, on that issue, particularly uh, you've motivated me to do it even more because it is this, you know, quote, hypothesis of linear no threshold is just, is, is so irrational and it's used for everything. I mean, it's just this, it's just this uh, unlimited source of power for people who want to say, oh, I'm making your life cleaner, so I'm going to, no amount of ozone in the air is okay. Uh, well, even, even though nature fails our test, well, we're still going to subject <laughs> industry uh, to the test. So I have, I have a question that I haven't, I haven't researched fully, but I think it seems bizarre to me the way that nuclear reactors 
seem to evolve or not evolve and that you hear, okay, there's this generation and I know they talk about fourth generation, but it seems like the number and variety of different reactors is so small and so stagnant and we don't see that in many other industries. So what's, is, is that true and, and what's going on there? Well, it is true, and 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 I've never been a fan of this notion of first, second, second, third gen, fourth gen, any of that kind of stuff. Because I have to snicker that the first reactor we ever uh, built that made any power in the United States was a fourth gen sodium cooled fast breeder reactor in 1951. Uh, this whole uh, first and second and third and fourth gen has been retconned on the industry. I think to make people think we were progressing somewhere. All of the reactor concepts we know of today were invented sometime between about 1943 and about 1951, with the molten salt reactor, the one that I really like so much, being the most recent addition to the list, uh, having been invented in 1951. So uh, only some of them were taken forward into development, specifically the pressurized light water reactor, because the pressurized light water reactor was really a great reactor for nuclear submarines. It was compact. Uh, it was... Uh, it was able to do the job that a nuclear submarine wanted. It was compact. That was really the big reason. Uh, the mistake, I think, was made in deciding that the pressurized light water reactor was going to be basis, the basis of, of the civilian nuclear uh, power effort. And, and ironically, it was a decision that was uniformly opposed by the leadership of the laboratories of the Atomic Energy Commission in 1953. When the, when the guys in D.C. said, you know, we're going to build light water, we're gonna build a light water reactor in Shippingport, Pennsylvania, they said, this is a dumb idea. It's a good sub-reactor. It's not a good uh, civilian reactor. And, and time is borne out. They were right from the very beginning. Now, what squelches innovation? Well, it's, it's several things. You know, one of them is, is, is how much profit potential is there in the construction of a nuclear reactor and in the construction of any machine that makes electricity. It's not an overwhelmingly compelling profit potential. And it makes it hard to attract risk capital to that endeavor because even if everything goes perfectly just the way you want, your investors just aren't going to make all that much money relative to other things they could be doing that could make more money. Uh, so that's an even more fundamental challenge that really applies broadly to the entire energy industry, but particularly to nuclear energy, energy because of the risk that uh, the investment community would see looking at, you know, should I put, uh, you know, a billion dollars into developing a new nuclear power plant. Well, yes, I think you should. And if you do, here are the wonderful things that will happen. And here's the $100 million a year you can make. $100 million? Wait, I put a billion in. That'll take me you know, quite a while to make my money back. <laughs> well, oh, sorry. It's just it's cheap, and, and we aim to make it even cheaper. I mean, that's, that's one of the core challenges, I think, of getting nuclear innovation is, uh, is the idea that, that there are just other more exciting things for uh, investors to pursue, and and they see the risk, and they see the 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 uniform public opinion against it, and they see the regulatory challenge, and ah, they run for the doors. I mean, I could just tell you story after story after story about this, but <laughs> but what if I mean, so cheapness is an interesting kind of concept because it's easy to be stuck in a present frame of reference because I mean. You, you could say, well, at, at any given point in time, bandwidth seems to be cheap or hard disk space seems to be cheap. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm not that special in regard to this because I'm not that, you know, I'm only 35, but I remember at age 12 lusting after the, you know, whatever, $200, 100 megabyte hard drive. 
or something <laughs> like that. And, and when uh, I was 12 years old, I remember lusting after the 128 kilobyte Apple IIc computer. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you have that that you you have those things, and in, in your hard drive uh, space has just been this you know amazing explosion. So now on my desk, I've got a five terabyte drive, and the iPhone has a 64 gigabyte thing and it's it's i mean gigabyte was inconceivable when i started Oh, inconceivable i remember the first time i ever saw a computer that had a hard drive and they said this computer has a five megabyte hard drive and i said five megabytes my goodness that's like that's like 10 or 15 floppy disks I, it was beyond my comprehension how could you what could you ever possibly do with so much space yeah so we have this thing but at any given point like right now it seems oh my gosh how cheap is disk space but mm -hmm. in 10 years, it could seem like, oh, well, this was, you know, relative, it got, it's, it's gotten that much, uh, you know, that much cheaper. So with energy, particularly as, as you're dealing with something much denser, it, it, I, get, I don't know, but it seems theoretically, well, what if, what if you could make it decrease in price, even like something like bandwidth, which probably has, which hasn't decreased in price as much as, as uh, hard drive space, but has certainly decreased a lot. It just seems like it, it, at any given point, you can say, Oh, it's pretty cheap, uh, but part of it is as it becomes cheaper, you get more volume on it, you get more use cases for it. Um, but that's where that's where a kilowatt hour is different than you know a megabyte, for instance. I mean, it, what is you'll you'll know the answer to this because I don't really know what is the average cost of a kilowatt hour in the United States? Uh, about a kilowatt hour is like ten cents. Okay, so let's say we took it to zero. You know, we had a magic box that could make kilowatt hours for nothing. You know. Well, now we can make 10 whole cents of maximum profit on the production and sale of each kilowatt hour. You know, it's just... Yeah, but know, how many of those we are, just, are there's there? There's just not that many. <laughs> well, there's there's quite a few. And, and if you could get into the fuel market, then it would be uh, a lot, a lot. I mean, if you could somehow, uh, you know, be, be powering batteries or some other superior storage technology for, uh, for mobility. I mean, it, you know, the... Well, I guess I mean the you know the fossil fuel industry is what three, four, five trillion dollar industry uh, globally. But the fossil fuel industry produces a liquid hydrocarbon product that is sold for considerably more than ten cents a kilowatt hour equivalent. You know that right. that gas you're filling your tank up with the car. I don't know what that would map into in kilowatt hours, but I think it's something like you know fifty cents or more. Yeah, yeah, it's something like. Th this is why I tell my wife, you know, sitting in the car, idling the car with the air conditioning on to run the air conditioning, not a not a good use of energy resources. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I do it, uh, and and it is efficient if if I'm somewhere where there's nowhere to sit inside, and that's the only way of being comfortable doing work. But yeah, that is that is uh, I, I joke about that sometimes because that is people talk about efficiency, and this goes back to. It's ultimately about resource efficiency and, and life slash happiness uh, efficiency, and sometimes it does make sense to do that. Although you should realize that you are not you are using a lot of energy to get to get that air conditioning. Uh, but okay, so okay, but okay, there's you can say ten cents, but uh, you know I don't know the exact size of the entire electricity market, but it's quite large. And then of course you, you oh, can penetrate, and then and then you could potentially expand it. So if we take something like desalination. Let's say you got if you had that zero percent thing. Well, I think you know you could. I know you could do desalination a lot, a lot uh, more efficiently. So it's in part you haven't had in terms of like a core technology uh, of generating energy. You haven't had a real revolution in a while. You've had discovery 
uh, revolutions in terms of the, you know, the, the modern combination of technologies that going into, say, oil and gas extraction. Um, but yeah, I, I, this is my own fantasy, and I have nowhere near your technical knowledge, but I just sort of think, well, at some point you might get to the point where this, this because you're dealing with this game-changing raw material, you could come up with super, super efficient ways to harness it that would be game changers. And even if you look at like a finished plant, like in um, like Palo Verde in Arizona, I mean, they're running something like two cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, that is yeah. a big, you know, that's a big deal. It's incredibly low, but but th we saw this happen with fracking. You know, as fracking came online, and and we saw gas go from thirteen dollars a million BTU to six, down to all the way to two. Uh, it, it it dismembered the fracking market. You know, all of a sudden, the 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 margins and the revenues and the profits they were hoping to make were you know eviscerated. People were going bust all the time, and and uh, rig counts went way down. And 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 so you you run this very real risk of if you do drive the price down, you drive down the very signal that causes people to innovate and to pursue it in the first place. So I, I, that's one of the reasons I've I've had a hard time ever getting my mind wrapped around this idea that okay, let's make energy really really cheap. I'm gonna go. Well, energy's already really really cheap. Uh, the guys who are making money in the energy industry are the ones who are selling higher cost forms of energy, particularly petroleum guys. You know, we don't use petroleum to make electricity. Very rare place. I mean, Hawaii and Maine use petroleum to make electricity. Everybody else does something else. Uh, we use petroleum in vehicles that just can't do it any other way. You know, we can't go put coal or natural – well, I guess we could put natural gas in our car. But, you know, we use this liquid, stable uh, liquid at, at – room temperature and pressure petroleum product to, to, to drive vehicles. And, and, and the energy cost of doing that is a substantially higher than a kilowatt hour coming off the grid, you know, as the, as the electric uh, car guys are, are learning uh, very bitterly. So, I mean, you look at what's happening with coal stocks in this country. They've, they've plummeted in value. I mean, if you were probably to aggregate all of the value of all the coal mines and coal companies in the country, it's, it's probably less than a billion dollars now. And yet you aggregate the value of a, a you know Exxon or Mobil or Shell or the big petroleum producers, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth. So I think that kind of points a way of, okay, here, here's where the market has decided this is a lucrative form of energy and this is a not very lucrative form of energy. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, there are always people who make money from lower priced commodities. I mean, if you're starting your own small business, it's usually recommended that you find something that's very decommoditized and ca commands very high profit margins uh, relative to uh, other things. So, you know, oil is definitely the, uh, it, it, it's producing this unique thing in the context of an unparalleled li liquid fuel uh, with energy density, high energy density for transportation. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if because if it was really that, well, there's not not really anything to be gained on price, then... Well, know. not necessarily. I mean, one of the things you would do if you had very low cost electricity is you'd probably crack water, take hydrogen, upgrade coal to a petroleum product and take what was otherwise a super cheap product and turn it into a, you know, go from five cents kilowatt hour equivalent to 50 cents kilowatt hour equivalent. You know, I mean, I hate to say it, but if I had all, all the energy I could ever want, that's probably what I'd do. I'd make liquid fuels because I know they'd make a whole lot more money per unit power than uh, than, than electricity does. Right. Well, in that case, you'd be sort of combining functions of your, your company. I mean, it's, it, you'd still uh, the liquid fuel company could still probably command a pretty low price 
uh, for its input. So in any case, um, I, I mean, I think these are some of the exciting uses of, of energy prices going down and having more abundance. And I just stress to listeners that it's, it's easy to get trapped in the current context as, oh, well, this is pretty much the best case scenario. And I, and I have this quote in my book from uh, Amory Lovins, who's still considered a, a thought leader in energy and certainly was considered a prodigy in the 70s. And he says, you know, we, we have twice as much energy as electricity as we can use to advantage. And there was a big prejudice against electricity as this wasteful form of energy because, you know, the raw energy is it's quote unquote inefficient because you're losing 66% or whatever of the raw energy. And so, you know, if that it's was amazing how 30 Amory years can ago, be so revered for being uniformly wrong for the last 40 years. Yeah. Really. But because his ideology is consistent with the ideology of people whose self-esteem is uh, wedded to their ideology. So, yeah. And then let me back up right before we finish. I, I wanted, I do want to say this point about energy storage because earlier you said, Oh, if only we had energy storage and all these green sources would just be, Oh, they'd be so great. You know, wind and solar energy storage would be the best thing that ever happened to dense forms of energy, coal, nuclear, hydro, hydro being built in energy storage. But if you did have really inexpensive energy storage, uh, that would be a great thing for, for the coal and nuclear industry because now you could get rid of peaking power entirely. So the notion that coal or the notion that storage is going to be the savior of wind and solar to me is ludicrous. If anything, energy storage is going to be far more beneficial for baseload energy sources than it's going to be for uh, intermittent, unreliable energy sources. Yeah, that that's a really important point. And in general, I mean, it's the they, they've their quote unquote excitement about storage is that their inferior bizarre technology will be less inferior and bizarre if you you know manufacture all of these whatever batteries. Although it'll probably be something else. Uh, whereas the real excitement is. Wow, imagine we could have 10, 20, 30 times the energy density for all of these different portable things. Imagine how many more things we could do on the go. I mean, you could yeah. have you could have a battery or whatever, you know, you know, storage power that's uh it basically if you can have a genuine competitor for petroleum on the market that can be manufactured, you have changed the world. But but as you touched on with Amory Levins a moment ago, there's an even more pervasive thought cancer that has infected the body politic for years now. And that is the idea that the utilization of energy is inherently an immoral thing. And that is so wicked and so wrong and so immoral in and of itself that it, 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 defies, it defies belief. But nevertheless, it is widely believed that we are more moral or good when we turn off the light or we turn off the heat or we turn off the air conditioning than when we utilize these amazing products of our own ingenuity. And, and I think of the story in your book about the, the children dying in the hospital because their machines wouldn't work. You know, did somebody feel particularly moral that day? It, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just was listening. It's it's. It, and it's it's this div i mean it's the extreme of this what normally manifests itself as just a complete devaluing uh of of what energy means to a life but it's it is it's made explicit by Amory and others uh at least occasionally 
that intrinsically energy is energy use is bad because the it's capacity to do work and doing work means impacting things and impacting things is evil so it is the whole idea of being green as your primary not 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 that you're worried about negative impacts for humans but that impact as such by humans is bad for the sake of an undisturbed rest of the planet you know that is at the core this you know, that's that's the that is that is the cleanest statement of what people believe but I, I think you're right that lots of people believe it and there was this chevron ad years ago or not that many years ago but that just said i will use less energy and i just yeah. thought that is a bad that is a poor thing to say about the rest of your life if that is your uh intention what what could be said that would be a moral statement was i will use energy as efficiently as possible and that is not the same as saying i will use less energy that is saying i will utilize energy and try to get the maximum value for it i mean i can't stand going to this open air mall that we have nearby and seeing the doors open on the buildings and and feeling the blast of air conditioning <laughs> coming out going into nothing i mean to me it just grates against my knowledge of the second law of thermodynamics and i think this is stupid and i shut the doors and then a few minutes later a 17 year old girl comes back and she props them open again you know so so waste is is never anything that i want but there are so many people in this planet who have not even remotely enough energy. And to tell them that, you know, you're going to use less energy, they're going, I almost use no energy to begin with. That's why my life is terrible. Those people are going to consume hundreds of times more energy than they do right now because they consume almost nothing right now. And they're going to do it so they can have clean water and they can have medicines and they can have food for their kids and they can have a decent life. One final thought about waste, because there's a, I, I think it's definitely true that you, you want more for less. So in that sense, you want efficiency, but you want it for you. As in, it's not that, well, you're ruining the world if you leave the door open. It's just, it's, it's senseless and it's not thoughtful. And the person in this case just has no idea how an air conditioning works. Uh, but it's it, when people talk too much about oh I'm going to use it efficiently or I'm going to there there there's a definite sense in which you want to be at a state of abundance where you don't have to worry on a micro level about efficiency because it takes your time and focus to focus on oh did I turn off every single light did I close each door I, I think of it like bandwidth and George Gilder used to talk about this he'd ask you know what if bandwidth were free and think about how many ways that I quote waste bandwidth. But overall, it's a state of bandwidth abundance. So I'm not just randomly downloading movies for the heck of it, and the companies have, you know, probably a limit of a terabyte a month or whatever. But uh, it's it's a great plenty is a great thing, and I think that's plenty. What we, plenty is a great thing. That's and, what we need to aspire to. And, and, and I mean, I am the kind of guy before we ever leave the house, I go around, I turn off all the lights because I hate waste. You know, engineers. Yeah, because you're waste. an engineer, and I'm not. Uh, and, and, and I, I appreciate that as a, it's kind of like I gratuitously in my head, correct everyone's grammar. Uh, but there's a sense in which that causes a bunch of friction. That's not really necessary. That sort of defeats its own purpose because the real purpose is to have clear communication. So if I correct everyone's pronunciation of et cetera, you know, that doesn't do anyone any good. So I, I get the <laughs> professional thing, but, but I do have a pet peeve with engineers discussing our civilization 
as fundamentally wasteful and inefficient just with this broad brush. And then even even equating like technical conversion efficiency with you know with economic inefficiency, which can often be just totally uh, unrelated. Because if you get you know five percent of nuclear potential and thirty three percent of coal's potential, it's still way more efficient to use uh, you know to use uh, the nuclear. So it's just it's I think the unifying idea for me is is humanism that everything we think of should be uh, you know mapped to and evaluated by the standard of of human well-being and that there in all of these different ways the green movement in particular have given us these frameworks and constructs in including this idea that energy use is something to feel bad about and to brag about not doing that are just completely undermine the pursuit of human life although they sometimes you know give them the trappings of oh yeah doesn't everyone agree with efficiency yeah so let's force you to buy a washing machine that's 10 times more expensive that'll be efficient yeah and, and you've probably read the writings of alvin weinberg too where he takes this on from a human perspective and he says you know uh, a lot of the times the things that we look at as energy inefficient are time efficient you know i, I i'm amazed to travel to europe all the time and and i find nobody over there seems to have dryers you know, it's just like they just don't have them and, and very humid countries, too. And I come back to the United States and I love my dryer because it dries my clothes quickly. Uh, does it consume a lot of energy? Yeah, probably. But, you know, it gets my clothes really dry and, and I like that and it does it quickly. And and so there is a trade off in, in a variety of different uh, avenues between the value of time versus the value of energy. And if energy is buying us time. It buys us time in our lives to do all kinds of things. Uh, that otherwise we would not be able to do. You know, human beings spent most of recorded history out harvesting this tiny sliver of energy in the form of uh, crops uh, to just survive another year. And, and now we live in an era where we harvest enormous amounts more energy through the form of, of fossil fuels. And, and I look forward, hopefully, to a future where we're harvesting far, far, far more energy than that in the form of nuclear fuels. So, Yeah, I have not actually read... Uh, Weinberger, at least I, I, not extensively because I don't remember. I mean, I'm familiar with that concept, so I'll, I'll definitely go read that because that is a that is a very uh, important, you know, just just such such an important point. So we've gone long here, but I, I think I, I think people will have enjoyed it. And and I remember last time, and, and one of the reasons I like your work is because you have a a genuine core enthusiasm for energy and technology and human life, and it's it's not about the particular. The enthusiasm for the technology is a function of that versus some sort of, uh, you know, partisan, uh, oh, I just happen to like, uh, you know. No, like very, very well, very well stated. It is my, my enthusiasm for the technology is a function of the good things that I can see it doing for the human race. So, um, so people can learn more about uh, your technological interests and what they could do for the human race. Uh, where are the best places to find more about you? Well, I'm always I'm always hesitant to point anybody towards my poorly maintained websites of uh, fly-energy.com and energyfromthorium.com. I would say probably they'd be a lot better off uh, 
looking at some of uh, Gordon McDowell's videos on the subject. Just uh, Google Thorium and go to the videos tab, and you'll find all kinds of of well made, uh, well thought through uh, video constructions that, he, that he's put together of of my talks and other people's talks on this subject. And I would probably recommend that as being one of the best places you could go to learn more. Okay, well we'll link to that, and I, I don't know if he has it among uh, his videos, but in any case, we'll link to your well, I, I have TED a, talk. I have I have a collection that I can I can send to you. I keep a, a media tab on the Flyb Energy page. It has a, a lot of these uh, videos and, and links and so forth. Okay. So, but I know the the original uh, TEDx Energy from Thorium thing. I just checked it has about three hundred thirty thousand views, and, and that's that's I think a, a really exciting uh, introduction where people will get a visual sense of some of the concepts that that you're talking about. So, Kirk, thanks so much for being on the program and for everything you do, and and we'll be in touch. Thank you very much, Alex. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks again to Kirk Sorensen for being on the show. Uh, we went long in part because we covered just lots of different stuff. And I think you can see at the end that we really got into our own own passion for what I, I call humanism. And, and the fact that in so many ways, the lack of that undercuts the self-esteem of our culture, undercuts the ambition of our culture, undercuts the optimism of our culture. So it, it's a real pleasure to have Kirk on. Uh, for that reason, that, that underlying philosophy and, and even uh, psychology, uh, as well as all of his technical knowledge. So hopefully you, you enjoyed that. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to follow me, Center for Industrial Progress, I Love Fossil Fuels, and or I Love Nuclear on Facebook or Twitter. Most important, maybe besides getting your copy of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels or getting it for someone else, make sure you are on our newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Sign up for the newsletter so that you get our columns and all kinds of other stuff every week. All right, that's it for now. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.